Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 22. We're back in the United States, and today we're going to be talking about serial killer Jake Bird. So despite being a fairly prolific serial killer, you actually might not have ever heard of Jake Bird. I'm going to give away the ending right at the beginning. And in 1947, Jake Bird is executed for the murder of a mother and daughter. And just before his death, he confessed to murdering 44 people. And at least 12 of those murders have been connected to him since then. The fact that Bird thought he could hex individuals with his name is what made him unique among serial killers. As people tried to punish him, he would put the Jake Bird hex on them. And amazingly, several people involved in his trial actually did pass away suddenly. We'll go into those deaths and the hex in general a little later in the podcast, but now I want to start at the very beginning. And Jake Bird was born on December 14th, 1901 in Louisiana. Not much is known about his early life. He didn't even know his precise birthplace, only that he was born somewhere in Louisiana. At the age of 19, he leaves and he lives a transient lifestyle, rarely staying in one spot for any extended period of time. He would get work doing odd jobs to make money and frequently found work as a railway laborer. These positions were fairly simple to get and they provided Bird with the freedom to move from town to town. Turns out this kind of life worked really well for him to pursue what he loved, which unfortunately was stalking and killing women. Bird had a long history of criminal activity, including burglaries, assaults, murder attempts, and murder. He estimates that he served about 15 years in various prisons for committing crimes. Details about his previous crimes or life in general are pretty scarce, so we're going to jump ahead to October 30th, 1947. Bird is now 45 years old and making his way through Tacoma, Washington. He comes across the home of Bertha Clutt, 52, and her daughter Beverly June, 17. According to McCleary for HistoryLink.com, on October 30th, 1947, at 2.30 a.m., Tacoma police officers Evan Skip Davies and Andrew Sabutis are dispatched to 1007 South 21st Street to look into reports of screams coming from within the home. A man sprints out the back door into the backyard as they approach. He crashed through a picket fence and was barefoot. The two police officers start pursuing right away. The fugitive is eventually blocked by a high fence and cornered in an alley behind 2122 South J Street after scaling a number of backyard gates. He pulls out a jackknife and starts attacking the police, stabbing Saputis in the shoulder and cutting Davy's hand. Officer Saputo, a former prize fighter known as Tiny Lamar, uses a left hook to the jaw and a kick to the crotch to bring the attacker to the ground. After the altercation, after the altercation, Officer John Hickey drove the prisoner to the Tacoma General Hospital in a patrol wagon where he was treated for head and face injuries. 
Davies had the injuries on his hands stitched and bandaged there, while Saputis, who had a terrible back wound, was being treated at St. Joseph Hospital. When police officers arrive back at the home, they discover Bertha dead in her bedroom, which was right next to the kitchen, and Beverly June dead on the kitchen floor. An axe had been left at the scene of the crime that had been used to bludgeon both women to death. Before Bertha was killed, a sexual assault attempt had been undertaken, according to Detective Lieutenant Earl Cornelson. Hearing her mother's screams, Beverly June presumably ran from her bedroom upstairs into the kitchen, where she ran into the attacker and was killed. Detective Lieutenant Sherman W. Lyons questions Bird at the Tacoma City Prison, where he dictates and signs a confession in front of four law enforcement officials. According to his confession, he entered the Clute home through the rear door, which was left open to carry out a, quote, easy burglary. To bluff anyone off who tried to harass me, he brings an axe he discovers in a shed nearby. Bird took off his shoes and enters Bertha's bedroom, where he took $1.50 from her pocketbook. He turns around and sees Beverly June standing behind him as he enters the kitchen. Bird assures her that all he needed was some cash and a pair of shoes before he would leave. Now, Bird's account of the story is that the two women are killed in the ensuing struggle after Beverly June suddenly grabs him from behind. Bird continued by saying that when the police had him surrounded in the bushes, he was afraid they would shoot him, and that's why he stabbed them. Doesn't matter what Bird's story is. He's charged with first-degree murder in Pierce County Superior Court on Friday, October 31st, 1947, but only for the death of Bertha. In cases of multiple homicides, at this time it was common to only bring forward one charge, so that if they failed to secure on the first conviction, it allows them uh, an opportunity to file an additional murder charge. James W. Selden, a former Pierce County prosecutor, is chosen by Judge Edward D. Hodge to serve as the defense attorney, and Byrd enters a not guilty plea at his arraignment. A trial date is set for November 24, 1947. Defense attorney Selden asks for a change of venue at a motion hearing on November 14th, uh, arguing that Pierce County would not allow for a fair trial for Byrd. He also requests to be removed as Byrd's lawyer, citing that Byrd intended to defend himself, but both requests are refused by Judge Hodge. Prospective jurors are then questioned about how they learned about the crime from the news media, and if Jake Byrd, a black man, could receive a fair trial. Four jurors are excused after it's discovered they had recently participated in a first-degree murder trial where the prisoner had been found guilty and given the death penalty. Eventually, a jury of nine men and three women is chosen before the end of the day, and the trial moves quickly and is over after just one and a half days of testimony. The goal of prosecuting attorney Patrick M. Steele's strategy is to show that Bertha's killing was intentional, so that Bird would be eligible for the death penalty. Evidence pertaining to the heinous murder of Beverly, who was bludgeoned to death in the kitchen after defending her mother, weighed strongly in the trial. Both victims' brain matter and blood were discovered on Bird's clothing, his bloody fingerprints are discovered on the axe, uh, and in the home 
His shoes are discovered at the crime site. Officer John Hickey of the Tacoma Police Department is called as a witness by the prosecution, and he admitted that he and Officer Russell Skatum beat Bird while they had him under their custody. According again to McCleary for HistoryLink.com, the newspaper, the Seattle Post Intelligencer, who in 1881 merged with the Seattle Post, reported that Hickey said, quote, I regret to say that I lost my temper after returning from the Clute home and viewing the terribly hacked bodies of the two women. I'd asked Bird as we sat in the patrol wagon why he murdered the two women. He said he didn't do it. I asked him who did it then, and he said it was Leroy. Who's Leroy, I asked him. Oh, another Negro around town, Bird replied. You're lying, I replied, and he looked at me with a smug and insolent look. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I hit him in the jaw with my fist, knocking him to the front of the patrol wagon. Then I struck him a number of times with my nightstick until he said, don't kill me. That brought me to my senses, and we took him to the hospital, where a nurse said he wasn't badly hurt. Afterwards, defense attorney Selden objected to Prosecutor Steele's motion to introduce Byrd's signed confession into evidence, arguing that it was acquired under duress and was therefore inadmissible. But Judge Hodge disagreed and let it into evidence, concluding that there was no connection between the beating and Byrd's voluntarily made confession. So the confession is read into record despite Selden's persistent and adamant protestations, after which the prosecution rested its case. Without summoning Byrd or any other witness to the stand, defense attorney Selden also rests for the defense. The case goes before the jury at noon on Wednesday, November 26, 1947, after closing arguments had started that same morning. The jury will reach a decision after only 35 minutes of deliberation. Byrd is found guilty of first-degree murder, and the jury rules to execute him. Byrd is then sentenced to death by hanging on December 6, 1947, with the execution to take place at the Washington State Prison on January 16th. Defense counsel Selden informs the court that he has done everything in his power to defend Byrd, and no further appeals will be filed on Byrd's behalf. And this is after Judge Hodge denies one final motion for a new trial. According to McCleary, uh, for HistoryLink.com, the Tacoma News Tribune reported that Selden then declared, quote, I feel whenever any man 45 years old gets an idea that no lives are safe to anyone except his own, that man is a detriment to society and should be obliterated. Now, Byrd responds to Judge Hodge by saying, quote, I was given no chance to defend myself. My own lawyers just asked you to hang me. They apologized for defending me. If they were so reluctant to defend me, why did they contest the prosecutor's proof of murder and now say that everything is proven? Byrd would conclude his 20-minute passionate address by saying, quote, All you guys who had anything to do with this case are going to die before I do. This was dubbed the Jake Bird Hex. The hex didn't draw much attention because it was dismissed as simply a pointless threat. Until dust began to occur, that is. Now, shockingly, five men in Bird's trial would pass away in less than a year. 
According to reporting for SouthSoundTalk.com, these are the five men who ended up passing away. The first was the judge who sentenced Bird, and he's the first to die. Uh, So Edward D. Hodge, Pierce County Superior Court judge, 69, dies on January 1st, 1948, of a heart attack. Then Joseph Carpatch, Pierce County Undersheriff, 46, dies on April 5th, also of a heart attack. George Harrigan, Pierce County Court Reporter, 69, dies on June 11th of pneumonia. Sherman Lyons, Tacoma Police Detective Lieutenant, 46, dies October 28th of a heart attack. And lastly was Byrd's own defense attorney, James Selden, 76, and he dies November 26th also of a heart attack. So take that for what you will. Were the deaths just coincidence? Or was the Jake Bird hex a real thing? Before the deaths occurred, Pierce County Under Sheriff Joseph Carpatch and Deputy Michael Weaverick transport Bird to the Washington State Prison in Walla Walla on December 7th, 1947, where he would await his execution. Now, soon after his arrival, Bird starts admitting to other murders he commits over the last 20 year period. Pierce County Prosecutor Patrick Steele and Tacoma Police Detective Lieutenant Sherman Lyons, before he dies, visit the prison on January 6, 1948, at the governor's request to hear the confessions. Bird offered to tell them more in order to clear his conscience, but it is instead a transparent attempt to gain a reprieve from his own impending execution. But Steeles and Lyons do take copious notes on Bird's statements over the next following days, and they compile their observations into a 174-page report for the governor. Bird does obtain a 60-day reprieve from the governor on January 15, 1948, by arguing that given enough time, he could clean up at least 44 murders that he'd either committed or taken part in during his travels across the nation. Many detectives from all over the country interview him at the state prison after hearing these confessions. Only 11 of these 44 confessions were shown to be true, but Bird knew more than enough about the others to be the main suspect. Authorities from various states seized the chance to put many of their unresolved homicides behind them. And Bird had traveled and murdered people, mostly white women, with hatches or axes in Illinois, Kentucky, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, South Dakota, Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Washington. According to reporting by Hunter for the Toronto Sun, Chicago detectives believed Bird to be responsible for a weighted Jane Doe that was left in Lake Michigan. Well, Houston homicide investigators suspected him of killing a Mrs. Harry Richardson. The LAPD accused Byrd of killing a black adolescent and a Jewish merchant on the West Coast. And in New York, Byrd is accused of killing the proprietor of a deli. Eventually, Judge Rossellini schedules Byrd's execution again for July 15, 1949, after the U.S. Court of Appeals declined to take the matter under review. This is after several appeals and motions have been filed. But another stay of execution is asked by Attorney Taggart. 
Now it's turned down so that he can appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Unfazed, uh, this attorney petitions for Byrd three more times, but the U.S. Supreme Court always declines to hear the case. The final time on July 14, 1949. The only remaining hope left for Byrd is an executive pardon from Governor Arthur B. Langley, but Langley decides not to intervene in the execution. Byrd eats his final meal on Thursday, July 14, 1949, and then has a two-hour conversation with his lawyer. Byrd advised Taggart that he would be a good loser because he believed that all efforts had been made to preserve his life. He's then transferred to a holding cell close to the gallows later that evening, where he was freshly shaved and dressed. Byrd, Warden Tom Smith, and two prison guards go 10 feet from the cell to the gallows just after midnight. Byrd remains silent in front of the 125 witnesses gathered. Reverend Arvid Ornell, a volunteer prison chaplain, begins to read a letter from Byrd in which he states he has no ill will towards anyone and begs for forgiveness. But before the reverend can finish, the trapdoor opens and Byrd plunges five feet to his death. On July 15, 1949, at 12.20 in the morning, Jake Byrd is hanged. 14 minutes later, his body is removed and jail doctor Almer Hill declares him dead. He's laid to rest in an unmarked grave at the prison cemetery that only bears the number 21520, his prison number. Byrd left his appeals lawyer, attorney Taggart, his personal wealth of $6.15. And despite the fact that Byrd admitted to perpetrating or being involved in at least 44 murders across the nation, his case was not covered by the national news. Nonetheless, history records him as one of the United States' most active serial killers. And that brings us to the end of the case and crimes of Jake Byrd. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod, or you can reach us by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. We look forward to seeing you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.